Hello and welcome back to the Fortune in Charge review. In this episode, we conclude Chapter 7 and McNamara's first day of work. We see the typical routine of the day, and in a sense, it is very routine. However, also somewhat unique. With McNamara, I viewed him as a character with humble aspirations, just wanting to be a teacher, earn enough money to move out of his parents' house, and live with his friends. However, I also saw him as a person with much potential, but not given the opportunity. For someone like Curtis, this job is tremendously easy. You just need to pick up Colin, feed him, and take him to work, write the report, record the data. However, the mundane elements of this job are not right for Chris McNamara. There isn't progression or true challenge besides the caregiving elements of the job, which are a real challenge for him, and the anxiety he feels when at a restaurant with Colin and feeling everyone looking at them. Inspiration. The chapter ends with the repeated saying, Colin is always the hero. I like the idea of a person like Colin always being up for interpretation to an extent. Since he's nonverbal, people understand his needs differently, basically by their own experience or schema, as uh, Curtis puts it. In a sense, I think he uh, symbolizes the theme of the novel and is the hero in a way as the embodiment of the fate versus free will. Uh, labor versus luck, and so on, elements. He is born the way he is, but forced into a normal way of life. It is the basic premise of the Life Connections program. His life is the core basic of life. He's forced to get up, bathe, dress, eat, work, and hopefully do something fulfilling on the weekends. It's the universal and the specific at once the monotony of his life, but also hopefully reflecting the experiences and feelings we all have. Since he cannot verbalize, he communicates through action, rolling his head, hitting himself, and so on. Expressing core emotions that can hurt himself and is part of the uh, intern's job to stifle. That being said, from the intern's perspective and McNamara's, doing the right thing seems a little murky. Is it better to let Colin just get it out? Or should he be restrained? Is it better to push him out in the world or keep him in a more comfortable environment like his home? There is ambiguity, but it is framed in the positive. Whatever happens during the day, it is from the heroic perspective of Colin. Craft and structure. The segments with Christopher McNamara continue to be focused on the more mundane, uh, meticulous, and somewhat alienating elements of life and work in particular. This, in a novel-wise perspective, uh, hopefully acts as juxtaposition to the more extreme events that follow in Chapter 8 and the conclusion of the novel, as storylines and themes continue to intertwine. As they were setting Colin's breakfast down on the kitchen table, Mrs. Tierney came rushing in. A stark contrast from the ornate, put-together woman of the interview. She had curlers in her hair, heavy bags under her ever-oscillating eyes, and she was wearing a purple bathrobe. Her movements were frantic and unfocused, her hands wildly gesticulating above her head, as if trying to process what to do next. Hi, Curtis. Hi, Christopher. So nice to see you today. You're in good hands with Curtis. Curtis, make sure you really mix those prunes in well. He didn't have a lot to drink yesterday, so make sure he has plenty to drink today. He was a little rambunctious last night, maybe from swimming in the pool yesterday. He had two BMs in the night, and he kept screaming and biting his hand. 
Do you think it was the Boston market? Eric tends to overfeed him. Oh, and make sure he has enough diapers in his bag. Eric keeps forgetting to replenish them at the end of the day. We're going to need respites next weekend. Does Dr. Mercer know? How's the carbon running? It's probably due for an oil change soon. On she went, rattling on various demands and concerns in rapid succession. Curtis had little choice than to nod and say, uh-huh, yes, and smile politely at her. Oh, I have to finish dressing Colin and put the lotion on his head and... She ran back upstairs and the two interns packed Colin's bag. There were compartments for his diapers, his snacks, the binder where the interns would record their behavior interventions, the quantitative research of the program, and a container filled with pictures. These pictures marked Colin's means of communication and choice, including pictures of the aforementioned restaurants, snack options, and the places he would be attending for the day. After preparing Colin's bag, Mrs. Tierney called down that Colin was ready. At the top of the steps, Colin sat, shaking his head rapidly back and forth, his lips pursed, and his eyes slightly narrowed, expressing anger. He curled his hands tightly into fists and then released them, spreading his fingers widely and stiffly. He then began to moan and slap his thigh violently. With his mother's coaxing, he shimmied his body down the front step, moving his head now in circles, and continued to gradually move down the stairs. When he was at the bottom of the stairs, Curtis lifted him up and placed Colin upright in front of him and walked him to the kitchen, both men's legs moving synchronously. Curtis sat him down at the table, moved a chair next to Colin, and began to feed him his oatmeal. Colin's mouth was opened wide, and he looked listlessly into the living room as Curtis delivered a spoonful of oatmeal and prunes. Colin smacked away like a person with no teeth in his mouth, trying to get down this gummy breakfast. Curtis then gave him a sip of his apple juice holding the napkin between the glass and Colin's chin as a rivulet of juice trickled down both ends of his mouth. After the sip, Colin writhed back and forth in his chair. Mrs. Tierney appeared, coaching Colin to be less of a slob around new guests and telling Curtis to make sure that Colin doesn't bite down too hard on the spoon during his next bite. She then composed herself a moment and sat down to talk to McNamara. So with that name, I am assuming you're Irish Catholic. Yes, the mix sort of gives it away. Well, we are Irish Catholic as well. Sorry we can't say the same about Curtis. Nope, I'm a Protestant and a mutt. That explains all the fleas, Mrs. Tierney retorted. Hey. Oh, I'm only kidding, Curtis. I just wish you'd fix yourself up a bit. Look, your buttons are all undone. You're a very eligible bachelor. A girl would be lucky to have you. Mrs. Tierney, as you can see, Curtis turned to McNamara, is my adoptive mother. How about you, Christopher? Do you have a girlfriend? No, not at the time being. That's a shame. You're a handsome young man. Thank you for dressing so nice today. I always try to make sure Colin is dressed well and looks clean cut. Thank you. Colin gets his hair, whatever's left of it, cut about every two weeks at Gus's. I'm sure you'll meet his barber at some point, Curtis added while feeding Colin. Colin likes the playboys Gus keeps at the shop. No girls allowed, right, buddy? Oh, stop it, Curtis. I don't know how Gus does it with how much Colin can't keep still. The playboys... Stop it, Curtis. So, Christopher, do you live at home? Yes. Of course, living at home and not having a girlfriend went hand in hand for him. He daydreamed for a moment about the prospect of living on his own, with his friends Burke and Dempsey. When that happened, he'd had a girlfriend. What do your parents do? My mom is a nurse. My dad works in IT. Very good. Mr. Tierney was a firefighter. He retired a few years ago. He'll be down shortly. He's getting a shower. She went back upstairs. After finishing his breakfast, 
Curtis presented the pictorial itinerary of Colin's day. First, we will get in the car. Curtis held up a picture of the gold Buick. Then we will go to PPCU. He held up a picture of the credit union. Then we will go to lunch. Where do you want to go today, Colin? Curtis held up a picture of Arby's and a picture of Burger King side by side in front of Colin's face. Colin shook his head back and forth and then delicately touched the Arby's picture. Okay, great. We'll go to Arby's. After lunch, we will go to work at Aria. Colin was shown the picture of Aria and appeared to nod slightly. McNamara chatted with Mr. Tierney for a little bit once he came down, McNamara sharing his appreciation of the novels on the bookshelf. Mrs. Tierney added that Mr. Tierney had a spectacular education from Gerard College after his father, a police officer, passed away. Mr. Tierney muttered something about having to come down from the Magic Mountain and wished McNamara the best of luck. Of the two, Mr. Tierney seemed much more delicate, subtly shaking and having a slight quiver in his voice. His eyes were cloudy as an April day, shrouding some long-lost color. Mrs. Tierney, on the other hand, had this firmness, sharp, piercing eyes and a body that reflected old age, but seemed indefatigable and eternal. The trio said goodbye and moved to PPCU. Colin worked in the mailroom of the credit union, his job being putting together promotional pamphlets to be mailed out to customers, junk mail most people would throw out anyway. With Colin's motor skills being very limited, the task consisted of him picking up an insert on his left with the intern guiding his elbow and placing it on the brochure to his right. The intern would set a timer when Colin began the task and stopped it when Colin was expressing clear signs of fatigue, which McNamara soon discovered was crying out, hitting himself on the top of his head and biting down on his hand. The intern, as Curtis demonstrated, would then stop the timer, move Colin's hands away from a position of hurting himself, and give him his apple juice and a snack. As Colin ate his snack, Curtis recorded Colin's time in the binder, which was part of the research element of the job. What do we do with the research? McNamara asked. We create a monthly report that we give to his parents. I don't know if Professor Mercer has any greater plans for this, but this is all pretty unique for a guy like Colin. If you don't mind me asking, I was never told uh, what he has. I don't know. The family has never divulged that. I know people say we should have his plan, but I've learned to accept it. I just treat him like a regular guy as much as possible. Okay, I think it's time to take him to the bathroom. It was suspicious that the family was not more transparent in Colin's diagnosis. McNamara supposed they had their right to keep that personal, but now his mind was fixated on the moment he had dreaded. Curtis wheeled Colin up to the bathroom, and McNamara followed. At the door, Colin put the brakes down on the wheelchair and lifted Colin out. They walked step by step as they had done in the living room into the bathroom, down to the handicap stall. Colin placed him at the railing and Colin held on, remaining upright. Curtis pulled Colin's pants down, checked to see if the blue line was visible, indicating if he urinated or not. He had, so Curtis ripped off the latches on both sides, removed the diaper, and put on a new one. You want to make sure the straps are tight, but not too tight. Okay. You then want to put the used diaper in this plastic bag and throw it into the bathroom trash can. Here, do you mind doing it for me? Sure, no problem. It did make McNamara's skin crawl slightly, picking up the diaper and placing it into the elastic bag, but it wasn't as bad as he expected. He had imagined the process to essentially be like how you would change a baby's diaper. This way was much less invasive than he thought it would be. After PPCU, they went to lunch at Arby's. The cashier was ecstatic to see Colin and knew his order by heart, a cheddar and roast beef sandwich with a medium order of curly fries. 
McNamara ordered the same as Colin, and Curtis ordered two roast beefs, a large order of fries, and a large soda. Food is my weakness, Curtis said as he fed Colin. I don't drink. It's just food and soda. Do you drink? A little bit. I don't know. I mean, I just don't get it. Why would you want to make yourself stupid? I just do it socially. It's nice to be around friends. It's a good escape, I guess. You stop worrying for a little bit. Colin put his thumb in his mouth and his other fingers on his temple. He began to moan in a higher register. That means he's happy. He likes his lunch. Being with Colin sharpens your senses in a way. I'm like a dog. I can sense how he's feeling without him saying a word. Most communication is nonverbal. That's true. This made McNamara more self-conscious in the tone of his voice, and he made an effort to mask any wavering or doubt when he spoke. The lunch may have been the most difficult part of the day so far. It was uncomfortable to be in someone's house like that, as opposed to a classroom, but that was a private environment. The same could be said for PPCU, every employee knowing Colin and how he behaved. However, being here in Arby's in the Franklin Mills Mall campus was unsettling. There was always a small tinge of unease when you walked into a public place. Nothing too life-threatening, but this vague sense that strangers are looking at you and judging you. Some people were surely more paranoid than others. Now here in Arby's, he knew for certain that people were looking at him and his table. How could they avoid it? Colin was so bizarre in stature, nearly the size of a dwarf, with bulbous, cloudy eyes that looked out in all directions, a bald head that was scabbed and sore red, disjointed body movements and contortions, and the strange, disturbing sounds he would make. What were they thinking? Were these two men torturing this small man with the nature of his vocalizations? Was this man deranged in some way? What disorder did he have? Oh, how these people could get bogged down in the mystery and draw countless wild conclusions. More cynically, McNamara figured these people were thinking, those three men have ruined my meal. The three went to Aria Hospital after lunch. Colin's job was very similar in terms of Colin moving a card from left to right and the intern having to stamp the card with the Aria address. Colin's time intervals were recorded for this task as well, and after two hours, Curtis and McNamara returned Colin home. Mrs. Tierney was more comfortable now and was fully made up and dressed. Curtis completed his daily report, and Curtis and McNamara made their way back to LaSalle in the Buick Century. I'm sure you know how to write, being an English teacher and all, but one big piece of advice in when you write the daily report, always make Colin the hero. Highlight the good parts of the day, the people who are friendly to him, not the negative. If Colin is having a bad day with the SIBs, self-injurious behaviors, just say Colin had some challenges, but overcame them, or something along those lines. You understand? Yes, Colin is always the hero. Colin is always the hero. Thank you for listening and your continued support. We pick up next time with Chapter 8, An In-Depth Return to Al Mercer. As always, please follow at Matthew Glasgow Author and visit Amazon for reading options. So long.